Blog Talk Radio. Bringing you excellent entertainment from the king of DC media. Here's the Inside Acting Radio Show. Good evening, dear listeners. This evening, my guest is friend of the show, director and author, Paul Curiazzi, who has directed films like Omega Cop, starring Adam West, Death Machines, and the action comedy Ninja Busters, which was released on Blu-ray last fall and will be screened in San Francisco October 29th. You can find his self-help classic, How to Live the James Bond Lifestyle Seminar, Spectre Edition, on Amazon.com. He has also created many audiobooks, including Wicked Players. Find out more about Paul at www.paulcuriazzi.com. That's A-Y-R-I-A-Z-I. I see he's on the line, live from the land of you only live twice in Japan. So let me bring Paul right on in. Good evening, Paul. Morning. I'm here in Japan, 9 a.m., uh, 12 hours ahead of you in the future. So uh, great talking <laughs> with you. Time traveling. That's it. That's it. And the future looks great, I tell all your listeners, so stick with it. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks, man. It's always a pleasure. I'm going to jump right in. So you were on the show last year. You spoke about the importance of having three big projects at once. Now, what are some of the projects you have been involved in in the, in the past three months? Uh, yes, you know, that's really true, um, uh, William. And, and I got that quote from an agent uh, who wrote a book, I forget his name, but he said if an actor can get um, three things uh, happening in a short period of time, like three months, they are viewed as hot. You know, so if an actor has a new movie and he appears on uh, a talk show and he has a new book, uh, then he's. Uh, and what you try to do is get those three things happening in a short period of time, and it's it's tough to do. I last year I couldn't get anything going, even though I took a, a lot of action. So to answer your question, um, recently I um, produced the Wicked Players, as you mentioned, it's an audio book, and um, I just got that on the line in Kindle, and. Um, I do have uh, Ninja Busters came out in Blu-ray, as you mentioned. It's going to show uh, this month uh, at the Great Star Theater in San Francisco, which I will be there with the cast and crew. We're going to do a afterward uh, talk um, after the movie. Uh, and I had some good luck. Sometimes just to have good luck is the most brilliant plan because my movie Death Machines is being made into a Blu-ray. I did the commentary last week. And I did an, a video introduction here uh, in Japan. I filmed it at a temple, to, a Japanese temple, to give it some uh, flavor. And nice. then uh, more good luck is um, uh, I have an agency here for uh, voice work. And they haven't called me for a year. I did a good job for them um, a year ago. And um, fortunately, on this Wicked Players, um, I, I was the narrator. It's, it's full cast. Uh, it's a two-hour audio book uh, about two ladies uh, cheating at blackjack in Las Vegas because they need the money. But I was the narrator on it, and it was a challenge. You know, actors you know, and, and all artists need a challenge. a little scary. Um, 
I did I did voice work before, but I hadn't done it in a while, and to do a whole audio book. So because of that, again, thank God I did it. Because when I got called suddenly to do this voice work in Japan in English, um, I was already revved up and had the confidence from the audio book I just did. So there's about five things that happened. Uh, Wicked players, I financed myself. I made that happen, and then um, uh, the other the other ones uh, came by chance. Plus. Um, um, I'm um, upgrading uh, covers on my my uh, Kindle books and uh, doing that kind of uh, thing. So it's been a productive three months. Nice, nice, very nice. So talk about how freelancers and actors and writers and directors can survive year after year and how they can break through to the next level of success. Well, you know, that's what we're always thinking about, um, uh, even uh, famous actors. Remember Gene Hackman? He, he said after every movie, he thinks that's his last movie. He, you know, he doesn't feel comfortable till he gets, uh, you know, the next movie. Um, uh, James Garner would play um, uh, basketball with friends uh, at a public basketball court near his house. But I heard he he would only go there. Uh, you know, yet his young time, he'd only go there when he'd have an upcoming project. If he didn't have a project, he wouldn't play basketball. So we're always <laughs> looking for that. You know, we're always looking for that next um, that next project. And I always remember John Travolta in the movie playing uh, Staying Alive, directed by Sylvester Stallone. Uh, you know, starts off uh, his girlfriend. He's in bed with his girlfriend, and in the morning he gets up early. She says, "Stick around, I'll make you breakfast." And he says, "No, I got to get something going." And I know that yeah. frustration. You know, you got to get something going. So he gets his headshots, and he goes around New York to all the agencies and gives gives his headshot out. And we all want to get something going, and sometimes you just you just can't get it going. So um, yeah, that's what I'd like to talk about uh, today. Some of the you know t- uh, techniques we can do. Uh, actors, you know, Charles Grodin had a uh, he had a uh, he had the lead of The Graduate. With Mike Nichols, uh, Mike Nichols directing, and they didn't agree on certain ways of doing it, and s- certain things happened, and he didn't get the part. Dustin Hoffman got the part, but Mike Nichols told Grodin, "Well, I'll put you in Catch 22 for sure." You know, in that ensemble group of the Air Force guys in World War II, and Grodin right. said it was like a year he had to wait. He says, "Well, if you can't act, you know, you can all you can do is get better." So that's the first yeah. step, you know. Between jobs, you got to get better. You better actor. Uh, and and t- today we're talking about all artists, writers, directors. Um, you know, all artists. Uh, um, so all you all you can do is get better. You know, and Sean Connery said the only reason for his success, he said this at the American uh, Film Institute when they gave him his award. The only reason he, he says the only reason I'm here is because I learned to read at age five, and he's a voracious reader. You know. Mm-hmm. They have many. Uh, yeah, the, the movie from Russia with Love replays James Bond. They have a shot where they're setting up the camera. He's in bed with the girl, and they're setting the lights, and he's reading a book. <laughs> you know, and there's <laughs> there's that. other there's other shots of him on the on the standing on the edge of a boat reading a book, waiting for them to set up the uh, reading a book, waiting for them to set us up. Uh, read everything you can get your hands on: biographies and success. Um, money, so that's a, that's another thing you can do, um, and, you know. And then 
if you're an actor uh, or any type of artist, uh, take the seminars, uh, the acting classes, because not only you learn techniques, but you bump into other people um, in the in your field uh, that may have jobs for you. So, absolutely, uh, yeah. So you know, uh, that's a that's a technique right there. So um, the other thing too. You know the money. How do you use your money? And I yeah. finance. Uh, you know how much money are you going to put into your to your career? Um, of, of course, you know these days with the social media, it's pretty it's inexpensive. You have a Facebook page. You get on LinkedIn. Um, you put your you know your profile there. Um, and you can make a, a video that you either act in or write or direct or all three, and you can put that on YouTube, have a YouTube page. So there's action that doesn't cost much money, even free. And then there's there's other action, you know, like I do. I spent a lot of money hiring uh, stars of the 60s that I loved in my audiobooks uh, 10 years ago. I had Rod Taylor narrating uh, one and in the cast was um, the two guys from West Side Story: George Shakiris, Russ Tamlin, uh, James Darren from um, Guns of Navarone and Time Tunnel, Kevin McCarthy, who everybody loves from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. All in one, uh, David Hedison, The Fly, and Boys of the Bottom of the Sea. All in one video paid these guys, and it was a lot of money. And uh, full cast, music effects, four-hour story that I wrote. And uh, the money has not come back, come back yet. But um, you know, which is one way of looking at it. And I have the screenplay. Try you know, to, uh, based on that, I use the audio to sell the screenplay. But there's image. We have to talk about image, which is what yeah. you begin your show with. Uh, you know, doing three things, not only you know, three things in a short period of time, but even one thing. I try to have. On my profile, like on LinkedIn and other right. sites, I try to have one project a year <laughs> listed there. You know, even if it's a Kindle book, it's one project a year that I produce. Right. And um, so, I'm talking about the expense of, of those, uh, like those audios, and I financed a couple of my own features, raised the money, which is you know you put, you put all your personal money in it and all your credit card, and then you raise money too, which you're responsible. So it's you know responsible for. Remember the movie The Yakuza, Robert Mitchum in Japan, and uh, the, the Japanese guy uh, says Robert Mitchum, what have you been doing all these years? And he says, well, real estate investment, stock market. Have you done well? And Mitchum says, it depends on how you figure those things. <laughs> and the guy says, yes. So it's like, okay, I didn't get my money back on the Rod Taylor. Uh, you know, audio book that I did with all those stars. But every day I wake up thinking, God, I work with all my heroes. Every time I see the Time Machine or West Side Story, you know, and Moby Dick, the first mate tells tells um, Captain Ahab, you know, hey, we're going after this white whale. What for? How much money is it gonna? The oil is it gonna fetch on the on the market? And Ahab says, money's not the measure. It fetches me a great premium here. And he touches his heart. So it depends on how you figure <laughs> those things. You have, you have to put money into your, into your career. Yeah. So like, uh, yeah, Ninja Busters, uh, there's a, uh, you might, um, uh, people listening might write this down. There's a site, uh, 
prweb.com. And for $150, yeah. they'll send out um, press releases. You have to have, you know, something cooking. you got to have a new project coming out. It's got to be, like, newsworthy. But it, it goes to every um, uh, agency, every newspaper, magazine, and they got them three different levels, all the way up to four hundred and twenty dollars. Which the big one goes every place, and you can attach a video, uh, links. And I did that for Ninja Busters because uh, you never know who's going to read it. Yeah. And it went out to sixty thousand places, and and then you have your own little page where you sign in. And I saw that a hundred and uh, one thousand seven people. Uh, opened it up. They saw the title via email, and then they opened it up to read and how many people saw the video, and then they put it in newspapers. I did that for the James Bond lifestyle, and a Las Vegas friend said, hey, it was in our newspaper, you know, and I didn't even know it. So it's a gambling thing. 450 bucks, you can have a lot of fun on that elsewhere, but you got to invest in yourself. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of us in the communication business were kind of like uh, modern-day poets, Paul, you know? I mean, we're it's kind of like the heart of the poet. Yes, yep, well said. And, uh, you know, you got to start off by, uh, you know, financing yourself. Now, we're, we're freelance people, and there's often a long time between jobs. And you talked about longevity, um, you know, sometimes you can go a year without a job. You have to have, I mean, without a, you know, an acting job or writing or directing job, and uh, you have to work, you know, and hopefully it's in a job you're comfortable with, but you have to work, and then you have to be available when opportunities happen. And, um, and that, that's how that's how you keep going, and you have to, you have to know that um, things can happen, and it and writers these days, uh, with the Kindle, anybody can publish. And with video and YouTube, anybody can make a, a movie. You saw what the, how they did Blair, Blair, Rich, Blair Witch Project. And Robert Rodriguez uh, financed his first movie using credit cards, I think 20 grand on his credit cards. And, you know, 20 grand, you can buy a car, or, you know, you can have a couple of great vacations. And he, he took a risk. Often uh, you don't get your money back on on movies, but once it's made, I mean you can put it on YouTube forever, and at least it's a completed uh, uh, project. So they asked Quentin Tarantino and another he was on a panel and they said you know nowadays anybody can make a movie so there's so too much competition, and some guy agreed but Quentin Tarantino says yeah that's maybe true so you but you can still break through. By making the greatest movie the world's ever seen, the most unusual, unique idea, which of course he did with Pulp Fiction, right. and he broke that way. So there is, yes, anybody can shoot video now and make a movie, even full length, for you know, for little money, and uh, or you can get published. So you got to make the greatest book with the greatest title and 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 break through the competition that way. But what we're saying. Yeah, everybody's a poet, and we but we got to take action. We just can't wait for the phone to ring and and get hired on a some dream job. I mean, it does ring if you're out there, uh, visible in the community on the internet and doing your own projects as well, be it you know expensive or, or non-expensive project. 
Exactly. So uh, I'm going to segue right into Pulp Fiction. That's a movie that you said changed your life. So how did it change your life? Well, I'll tell you, I um, I, I directed six features, and the independent market uh, kind of dried up. Uh, you know, they had the old independent action theaters around New York, everywhere, every major city. And I had script that I kept trying to get produced and raise the money, and they couldn't get that going. And then I saw Pulp Fiction, and God, I loved it. Went back the next day to see it, and I thought, this is so unique. The flashbacks, how he did it, it was even like a novel. They had chapters. Um, it, it was so unique that this would be just as great as a novel. And I thought, well, right. the script, you know, I like to make things. I like to have a completed project, whether it's a book or a movie. And so I thought, well, heck, I can't, you know, and I like to I like to have an audience and show things. This is when, just before the Internet was really getting big. And I thought, well, I'll just turn my script into a novel. You know, at least, I'll, you know, I, I have that as a production. I can't give you my script because you know, a script is a tool to make a movie, but I can hand you my novel. That's a completed art form. As you mentioned, we're all poets. So um, I, I wrote it. Um, it's called Rockstar Rising, and I changed it into a novel. And I started reading, usually I just read all business books and biographies. I started reading uh, classics and, and modern novels and just to get into the feeling. So I did that and that, and that rock star rising. And then that's what, that's what I used to produce as an audio book. So uh, that got me into the audio books and that got me into novel writing. So because of Pulp Fiction, I segued into that. And I think poets, as you mentioned, all of us artists and poets, uh, we have to branch into all fields. The America, the train companies, 50 years ago, they were number one. They thought they were just in the train business, but they did not invest in trucks and airplanes. They did not think they were in the transportation business. So once I branched out into the novels, I had to I think, hey, I can't just be in the movie directing, editing, writing business. i got to be in the communication business which means lectures, uh, how-to, James Bond lifestyle that I wrote, voice work, um, anything in the communication uh, business. So I, uh, you know, I uh, encourage uh, your listeners uh, not only to be in the acting business or the writing or directing business, but to be in the communication business, wherever that leads. Absolutely. And then by staying in staying in the communication business, then they have more opportunities for their specialty if it's acting, writing, or directing. Yeah. So that's how yeah. Pulp Fiction changed my life. It sure, it sure did. Excellent. We have a, uh, I'm looking at the chat room here. Uh, Paul, you got a nice little comment. Somebody says, uh, this guy, Paul Scrabbo, he says that Paul's audio stories are very film-like. Oh yes, thank you. I know Paul Scrabble. He's um, he's he's in, in the business himself. He did the commentary for the Mad Mad World, and uh, has been in many productions. And he's a Facebook friend. So um, you know, that's another thing. What I do on Facebook, instead of just I use my Facebook as a website. Now the top thing, the top thing on my uh, website will be what's happening now. Like I, William, I have your 
your show in the top spot. Somebody comes to my right. my page on Facebook, they'll see this what's happening right now. Later, when you post this as a recording, I'll have that on there. But I always make sure the next thing down is my project I'm working on now or just out, and the next thing down is uh, one of my movies or, or my you know. So if somebody shows up to my page on Facebook, they're going to see what's happening now and a project now. Not that I just went out to pizza or, or you know. So that's a that's a <laughs> technique. You know, that's the technique. I mean, Facebook is, you use it the way you want, but that's the technique I use. You never know, I never know who's going to land on my page, and I want them to say, to see, hey, I'm, you know, I'm on William Powell's show right now, and the next one they scroll down, oh, he made Death Machines, and oh, he made worked with all these actors, and I got my book with all the actors. So when they scroll down, they see my projects. So uh, now I will post fun things if uh, there's a song I like or a video I like. Yes, I post that for my friends, but then after a while I will take that off the Facebook page because you never know who's going to land on your page. Yeah, so then Paul says, uh, he talks about great casting. So I want to use that to jump into casting, then we'll jump back to Facebook because he also makes a couple of comments about that. But let's jump into casting right quick. You work with Rod Taylor, Don Stroud, Robert Colt, uh, Russ Tamlin from West Side Story, Adam West, Stuart Whitman, Troy Donahue. I mean, how did you cast all those actors? Okay, now that was money. Those were my own projects, and I hired them. I went to the agents, and I had the goods. I had a, I had a good script, and I, I gave a date. A lot of people say they, you know, they want to. They ask me about how do you get these actors or other actors. And I tell them, first, you got to have the money. You have to have yeah. the money ready. You just can't go to, you know, Adam West and say, you want to, you know, I want to record you. Or I want to put you in my movie. <laughs> Number one, you got to have the budget. You be ready to go. They know your So when I approach these actors, I said, I want to record on a certain date. Here's the script. I even gave them my novel. Um, remember giving Russ Tamman my novel? I said, you don't have to read this. I just want to show you that I'm serious. He says, oh, I know you're serious. So, um, yeah, so you have to have your project ready to go, you have to have a date, and you have to have a money offer for them, each each individual person. So I, I hired them, you know, and there's that, there's that risk, there's that risk again. Um, Wicked Players, what I did on this is my first uh, audio book, it's two hours, it's the one with the two women gambling in Las Vegas, Thriller. Mm-hmm. And instead of spending the fifty thousand dollars that those other audios uh, did, because I, I worked at professional studios, two hundred and twenty-five dollars an hour um, uh, for Wicked Players, I decided to cast um, not famous people just just to get it out. I would do the um, narr- the be the narrator. That was my artistic challenge, and it also gave me something for to give to my voice agent here another thing to show that I'm happening now and to get non um, you know non-famous people and to keep the budget down now I really recommend um, for your for your listeners whether you're an actor writer director is to is to write up a a story whether it's thriller or whatever a one or two hour um, project because now you don't have to go to a $200 an hour 
um, recording studio. Uh, you can record on a laptop. They have all those programs. I think it's called GarageBand. SoundDogs.com. You can get they got a million sound effects. You just search them. They got music. Uh, you know, three dollars a sound effect. They got ambience for every you know place in the world. So you produce your own audio, and uh, you can you can uh, you can put it on uh, YouTube. Uh, you can make a Kindle version of the of the text and put a. This is what I do. Put I think I developed that. Put a link instead of just selling it to audio to audio dot com. Uh, you, you do a Kindle and you put a link to a Dropbox or like Hightail.com where they can download your audio. Now you can edit on a laptop. So um, I have a guy who, a sound man, who, um, for, you know, for a very small price per hour edits at his home. But I do use, in San Francisco, I do use a very professional studio at $300 an hour. We got it all done in four hours. You know the two-hour show, all the actors. So casting uh, famous people, and it's it's just the voices that I think is right, or people I want to work with, the famous people, non-famous people, like on Wicked Players. I I went th- uh, to online voice actors in San Francisco. I needed two women because I, you know, I had a lot of men friends that I wanted to use that worked with me before, and I plugged them in as supporting actors. Uh, just from their voices, the the two women, uh, I needed special voices where they sound different and the right age, and I found them on um, uh, casting, um, internet casting for voice work. And there was one um, uh, woman, and she had a video on there, and she said I uh, hadn't worked for many years, but she had done college stuff and she wanted to get back in the business and I listened to her voice and uh, it was perfect and I got in touch with her and I didn't need an audition and you know we did it so I casted for voice the other thing I cast for is um, for a movie that's got in-person casting Um, they fit the part of course visually but also are they serious are they gonna you know show up on time and prepared and, that, and that's yeah. a big deal. You know, I did my movie Death Machines. Um, that was a technoscope color movie. And we hired actors for this fight scene and dialogue scene in the cafe. Ends up in a fight with bikers. And I hired four uh, real bikers. And it was two days, Saturday and Sunday. And they, they'd signed on for two days. So um, I was in the middle of the day on the first day, Saturday. I said, yeah, we're doing this dialogue here. Then we'll be finishing off the fight tomorrow. And the guy says, fight? Oh, man, we can't come tomorrow. we got to go on a putt. <laughs> I didn't... <laughs> on a putt, which means a motorcycle cruise. And I said, oh, but, okay. but when I hired you guys, it's like for two days. No, man, we got it. So there there are people, they say they want to you know, be in a movie, <laughs> but they'd rather go. And we they were being paid. So I had to, I had to, you know, make sure I shot and we did their portion of the fight and beat them up and knocked them down by the end of Saturday because I lost them Sunday. So I got to be careful that when I hire somebody, they're going to be there the time they're supposed to and for the you know, full time agreed. So seriousness, you know, somebody who's uh, who's serious, 
uh, somebody who has past credits, uh, you always like to hire because they put in the time, the effort, somebody who really wants it. And uh, this uh, this woman, uh, Christina Ramos, she, she really wanted it, and she came prepared, and uh, she was great. So that's how that's how I do I, I do casting. They fit the part, and they're serious, and you know they'll show up on time, ready to work. Oh, absolutely! That that that's a big key. So I wanted to jump right back into Facebook. Uh, so uh, Mr. Scrabo was saying that so many use Facebook as a brain dump rather than using it to spread good stuff and socially tell folks about your projects. So what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, you know, people that, that are not in the arts uh, and they're not looking to uh, expand their career, and which is fine, you know, uh, then it's fine for them to put, put pictures of their dogs and cats. I mean, that's all, that's all fine. But I think serious artists who want to move forward in the career should use Facebook as, uh, you know, to put serious things on there that make a contribution or information or uh, something in their field, say, hey, there's a great event over here, or, you know, this guy's going to be on a radio show. Um, so, yeah, I think the artists, serious artists who are putting money in themselves uh, and they want to stay in the business, uh, they should use Facebook uh, uh, for that. I wanted to mention for writers, writers pay attention here, um, there's a website, authorsden.com. I've been on there for 12 years now. Uh, it's free, and you can post your um, post your writings and your profile and your articles and uh, all of that, even books, photos of uh, covers of your books. It's and it's really developed uh, over the years, and they they got millions of viewers uh, per month. And they're very serious. Um, I mean, they've been 12 years. Authorsden.com. That's where I got all my articles. Um, uh, if you on a Google search, they come up. The two, the two that come up the most is you got your book on Amazon, which is why all writers should have at least one Kindle on Amazon, uh, so they can be searched and found. And Authors Den comes up when when your name is searched. So an um, author's den, it's free, but there's a, you can upgrade to a, the gold level, which I strongly recommend, um, which is $220 a year and makes you more visible, more storage, uh, more on the front page of author's den. That is a must uh, for writers, so uh, even directors with their scripts. So use authorsden.com. Uh, go there, check it out. You can check me out on that on there to see that's where I have all my articles and on those articles they have links that go to Amazon where people you know so I'll write an article about James Bond one aspect James Bond lifestyle and has a link that goes to Amazon that's a real tool so uh, you writers authorsden.com that's a must and get the gold level I'm not associated I'm not affiliated with them but that's been a tool that's really paid off for me over the years yeah, and so uh, we're on the subject of writing. Now, you co-wrote Death Machines, so talk about what makes a good screenplay. Well, yeah, that's an easy one to answer. My first movie was about um, three samurai 
going to England to join a fencing tournament, and they kidnap the royalty's daughter and take her in the woods. Well, naturally, my budget, I can only have them in the woods. And I got the three samurai outfits, and I had knights, you know, knights of the round table outfits, and one horse, and shot in technoscope. Um, and, it, and it, you know, it bombed. It did a little bit of the college circuit, and it just, I couldn't sell it. And it was short. It wasn't 90 minutes. You know, it was an hour. A lot of problems. And I said to myself, if I get another chance, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna make it a very exploitable thing for the market. So you got to think about the marketplace to answer your question. So when I got Death Machines, two years later, and it was financed by another guy, uh, Ron Marchini, who was a martial arts uh, American, but he was a martial art. He's a real martial arts tournament fighter um, in the days of Chuck Norris, and fought with him, and uh, he was a star in some Philippine uh, movies. So he produced, wanted to produce one in America. So when I got my chance, I got with Ron. We came up with a story, and it had the three killers. Caucasian, Asian, African American. At that time, the African American movies were big. Chinese movies were just coming into their own. So we had those three killers. We had a Japanese yakuza dragon lady who ran these three killers. We had gangsters. We had police station, a uh, big karate fight in a police station two years before the original Rambo had a karate fight in the police station. We had a big fight wipeout massacre scene in a karate school. We blew up an airplane. We had a bar fight. I had every explo and I like those things. <laughs> you know, a lot of guys says I never met I know <laughs> we had bikers we had bikers without I mentioned the biker scene. All those things for the poster. And when we got that film finished, took it to Crown International, they took it. They did. I mean I had all these exploitable to use the word things that they can put on the poster. So, which is interesting, too, um, at that time, uh, Rollerball, the original Rollerball with James Caan and Death Race 2000 with J uh, John uh, David Carradine came out. So, Crown International, in their wisdom, they didn't put anything on the poster. They put just a pyramid with the word death machine to make it look like a science fiction movie, which, was, which it was not, you know. So, uh, we even, I even had a... The topless dancer in the bar and a nude girl in a swim topless girl in a swimming pool in case they wanted to put that in the poster and then we strung them all together with a plot line you know gangster police i mean we had every exploitable thing in it so when you're right to answer your question <laughs> you gotta you got it's you gotta have something you gotta have a hook whether it's the blair rich project or a genre you gotta have a hook um because we're competing, uh, you know, we can't do Titanic. We don't have the money. So um, you got to have, yeah, it, it's got to be an exploitable thing for the marketplace. And um, and then on my first movie, I had these action sword fight scenes, but I didn't write it well enough where you have the suspense of it. So, you know, yeah. the kids were... The kids were running up for popcorn, and I wanted uh, at the theater for my first movie, and um, where it showed, and I wanted to say, "Sit down, there's an action scene coming," but I didn't hint that it's coming. You know that uh, that suspense, like Hitchcock t uh, talks about, two guys talking, but you show that there's a time bomb under the table, 
that's going to go off. Now you got the audience. They can't go to popcorn. So you got to let them know. So like that biker scene I mentioned with those bikers in the cafe, uh, one of the killers, he's escaping from the police. He comes into a cafe full of bikers. You know there's going to be a fight, so you can't go to popcorn. <laughs> so you got to have a suspense. <laughs> you you got to grab the audience. Um, the director of um, West Side Story, um, Robert Wise, and he did Sound of Music, Sand Pebbles, Day the Earth Stood Still, many great movies. He says you got to grab the audience at the beginning and never let them go. Pace means, he says, doesn't mean high-speed storytelling, but pace means to hold their interest. And I was just listening about the making of, of, um, of Psycho, um, Hitchcock, and he had scenes of uh, Janet Lee getting coming out of her apartment, getting in her car, uh, scenes like that. He cut them all out. He just went, boom, directly to the car so uh, to keep the pace going because the first the first cut of uh, Psycho um, was was lagged. You know, the writer Joseph Stefano was disappointed, but then they started tightening it up, and, it became, and then they added the music, and it became the masterpiece that it is. So watch your editing, tighten it up. Even a novel, you got to keep the, the audience uh, one more page, one more page. So I always write for a screenplay, you should write with the with the pen in one hand and the remote control for the television in the other hand, which means people <laughs> are watching your movie. See, every some guy pointed out that everything changed once we had remote controls on our television. It started in 19, what was it, 65 oh, or so? And yeah. once there was remote control, you just channel surf. Before, you had to stand up and flip the switch. So the remote control changed everything. So you got to hold the audience's interest. So to answer yeah. your question, yeah, keep the suspense going, get them from, grab them from the beginning, and uh, and hold them, and have some exploitable ideas for the po- poster. And exploitable doesn't cool. mean it has to be bikers or kung fu, but it has to be something of interest. Right. So let me ask you this: now, when you watch movies and TV, do you ever find yourself break, breaking them down from a director's standpoint, like a football coach? Break down game film. Do you look for certain plot elements and themes and camera movements and all those kind of things? Not until many, many viewings later. You know, William, I'm a I'm a film fan, which you know that's what kept me going through the years. A lot of people, writers, they say they they stop being film fans when they get into the business. Uh, Quentin Tarantino was asked, uh, "What's your goal in your?" directing and he said to remain a film fan and I thought that was so I I never judged the acting I'm you know just love the movie recently that movie Lucy was like wow you know uh, just loved it as a movie limitless you know that was very inspiring so I never watched the acting and never break it down but then when I see something I liked uh, Omega Cop I wanted to do a I had a shootout in in the future slave market with four cops i wanted to do a wild bunch type of thing so i got the video of the wild bunch and i walked that over the the shootout and broke it down how he cut to the slow motion when he used the slow motion how he intercut so i'll do i'll do that preparing if i want an effect preparing a scene um if i remember there's a movie the rise and fall of legs diamond ray danton yeah 
And uh, it was so fast-paced. This is a gangster movie, but it was unusual. It was, you know, it was really fast-paced. And only that movie, at one point, it was my young time and my first did my first feature, I did hash marks and counted the scenes. There were 63 scenes in that 90-minute movie. And what does that mean? What does that mean? That means the average scene is, uh, what, 45 seconds? So there would be a minute scene, two-minute scenes. One time, he just came out. He wanted to get these guys, and the scene uh, dissolves in. He's on the street, and, and he, uh, the, the legs diamond comes out with two guns in his hand, and he yells, McDermott, to these two brothers. Bang, 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 bang. And he kills the brothers and then runs off. You know, it was like 15 seconds. Oh, and no. uh, that's, that's where I learned about pace. So um, I did break down, yeah, pace. Um, and, and how many scenes? Now, the more the more scenes you have, uh, the more information you are giving uh, the audience, and the more entertainment hopefully you're giving the audience. So uh, that's why the more scenes, the better. Even in a even in a novel. Um, so so I did learn that. Um, and there's movies like um, Seven Samurai, the first, uh, it was a three-and-a-half-hour movie, and the two-hour, 20-minute version first came to America and was showed on the college market and such. The three-and-a-half-hour version of Seven Samurai is faster-paced than the two-hour, 20-minute version. You know, why is that? Well, they give you more information, and they give you more entertainment value. Yeah. So yeah, so the three and a half hour version is faster pace than the two hour version. So those are yes, huh. those are things that I do break down. But usually I just enjoy the movie. But then when I I see something that I want to figure out, then I'll then I will go in and think about the pace or how they did something. Oh, okay, yeah, interesting. That that's that's really smart. That way you can have the best of both worlds, enjoy it, and then use it as reference. When you actually want to move forward. Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, if there's a technique yeah. you want to learn or a genre you want to learn, uh, if you're in a certain genre, like a boxing movie, say you're going to do a boxing movie, well, you watch other boxing movies, not to take from them, hopefully to make the best boxing movie you know ever made and to do something different. So exactly. see what they've done before. That's why many uh, of the directors like Martin Scorsese, um, Steven um, Spielberg, they talk about uh, artists, filmmakers. They should see what's come, what the movies that came before. Uh, a lot of uh, filmmakers, they you know, they don't know the the older classic movies, but they have a lot to offer in techniques. Billy Wilder's movies, you know, Ace in the Hole, and. Treasure Sierra Madre, number one, you can build from there, see what's done in the past to do something different, do something unique or even better. But also, I like to add, it's a shame if people don't see this Treasure Sierra Madre or Hitchcock's Vertigo. It's a shame that they miss these entertainments, just as entertainment. So that's oh, why it's yeah. good. You know, you know, that's it's why you can, you can learn... You can learn from those classics, and um, and also be entertained from them, and then try to do something 
different because you might make a boxing movie and then, and then somebody says, well, that's already been done, you know, Raging Bull, that's already been done. Well, if you'd seen Raging Bull, you would have known that before you made it. So Yeah, right. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I, I was a friend posted, a, what was it, Buster Keaton, like a five-minute clip of some of his hijinks. It was really amazing that all the little stunts he did, it was like they're very clever. It's like he did all kinds of weird things with, when you know, a cop was chasing him and he was inside of a like a treasure chest and the treasure chest didn't have the bottom on it. <laughs> it was like it's the simplest thing that you can get a laugh out of. It's just so amazing. Yeah, yeah, and some of those stunts, Keaton, that famous one where he's sitting on the ground or on a chair in a house with a front flat falls on him and Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and just because he's sitting in the one space where the window is, he survived. And that was a real stunt. If if that if he, if that had missed its mark, he would have been killed. You know, so I, you shouldn't risk your life for it. But he you know, on a project, but uh, he sure did. Oh now yeah. Now you can do yeah, that. Absolutely. Now you can do that uh, different different ways and not CGI. Uh, you know, risk yourself. I tell everybody yeah, so- uh, uh, to work on movies, take any job. Uh, sound man, you know Francis Ford Coppola on his first uh, uh, working for Roger Corman, his first job. Uh, Corman said, uh, "Can can you do sound?" And Coppola said, uh, "Yes, I can." He says, "Okay, get on the you know, get on the plane tomorrow." And they went and filmed this thing in Europe. And Coppola went home that night with the Nagra tape recorder, and he got out the manual. And it says, "Step one." Turn the switch to on. <laughs> he learned it himself. He learned the Nagra that night. He didn't know how to do sound. So yeah. he, that's how he got. That's how he's he's got his first job. You know, he said something yeah. very interesting. His uh, I recommend um, uh, filmmakers to watch all of the Coppola commentaries on all his movies, Godfather, because he comes out with some great things. But he's talking about people will talk you out. That's that's the thing. We're on the subject how we can survive uh, in our careers, longevity. And as you go through, people's going to try to talk you out of things. And Coppola said all his great movies were ones where he took a risk and people, even the Godfather people, said, well, you shouldn't do that. And um, to almost quote him verbatim, because I remember the quote, um, he said, uh, you know, people are going to talk you out of things, and if you knuckle under something that could have been great will never, ever happen. You know, a project you were going to be, you're going to do right. uh, may never happen. Uh, I mentioned before, you know, age, I, I figured out myself, I noticed at age 26, all my filmmaking friends dropped out. They got pressure from parents, girlfriends, wives. Uh, you know, you took your shot two years after college. You took your shot age 26. Now you got to get a regular job, and and people knuckle under at age 26. Well, just recently, I found a quote from Ben Franklin who said, uh, "Most men die at age 25, and then they just wait to go to the grave at age 70." I missed it by a year. You know, wow. so he he, wow. he said, "Yeah, the danger age is age 25." I said it was 26. So, uh, you know, and people are always going to, that stuff never ends. Uh, four years ago, I did um, the audiobook McKnight's Memory. I had 10 stars, the stars that you mentioned. The leads were uh, Nancy Kwan, Robert Culp, David Edison. 
and and more Don Strouds in that one. But I got Frank Sinatra Jr. to narrate, which he loved, and then we were, we became friends, and he had me and. Uh, my agent uh, friend in Vegas backstage a couple of times, and we start working on another project, uh, one that I wrote that he loved, and and uh, he wanted to keep changing things. But uh, finally, uh, at one point, he said, "Paul, you can't keep making these audio books that don't sell." So even he tried to talk to me. I said, "I said, Frank, I'll, you know, I I got to got to keep making them," and I told him uh, all my peers. Uh, uh, from film school, they dropped out because they wouldn't uh, refinance their car. I actually literally did refinance my car to get an extra thousand to finish my first movie. And uh, mm. you know, so even Frank Sinatra Jr., great guy, and um, he, you know, uh, he said, "Paul, you got to stop." He wanted to do. Uh, he was going to do McKnight's Memory as a um, as a movie. He loved that story and was talking to some financiers and then finally just stopped mentioning it. So I don't know his reason for bringing that up or I got to stop, you know, but like I said, what Robert Mitchum said, you know, it depends on how you figure those things, you know, and, and the audio books, wicked players now is, was a $5,000 project as opposed to a $50,000 project. Interestingly, because the actors are amateurs, all their friends are buying it, are buying it. Because they want to hear their friend, they want to hear their friends in it, and they're gifting it to people, and so the money's coming in. That'll eventually come back in five years. So, um, you know, and the other thing in life, like, geez, what I'm, uh, you know, to not have worked with Rod, T- I'm crazy about those actors. You know, I grew up. The the actors we see at age thirteen or young teenage years are very powerful. If you're a film fan. Uh, uh, you know Rod Taylor and Alan Young from the Time Machine. So it's, it's you know I just can't think of not have worked with those guys. And that we talk go back to Image again forever. Those are on my resumes. And when I did yeah. Wicked Players, another reason for doing that I, at the end I had the announcer read my other audio books with those actors. <laughs> so you know other books mm. by Paul Curiosi. You know, uh, Rockstar Rising, narrated by Rod Taylor and all those actors. So I paid for them. The money's not coming back directly from those. But, um, you know, I I did direct those actors. 23 name, uh, 23 name actors so far in my career. And, you know, that's that stays on my resume. Plus the experience of working with them. So it depends on how you figure those things. Absolutely. When I was uh, so I uh, when I made Go ahead. when I made Death Machines, everybody got excited on the crew about making their own movie. They saw it was possible, and a lot of the some of the guys said they were going to you know, raise money to do it. One guy had a hundred thousand dollars, and he was going to do his own movie. He had a script. He was going to star in it, and um, and then at one point he bought a Porsche. And he said, you know, now that I bought the Porsche, I just can't do the movie. So maybe he would have made the movie and lost the money, or maybe he would have made the movie. You never know what will happen. Who are you going to meet? So uh, that was his choice, but he he wanted the Porsche more than mm. a movie. So it depends mm-hmm. on how you figure those things. On the movie Death, uh, Weapons of Death, one of the swordswomen I hired for four days. I had model women, 20, 25 swordswomen, and some were models, some were martial artists. 
and um, and one of them uh, hired me to go to Phuket, Thailand, and pay me a lot of money and fl- flew me for. I didn't ask to fly first class; it was a first class ticket. Showed up, and I went to Thailand to film a documentary there, direct it, and I brought one of my best friends as a cameraman, and all because uh, you know I had hired those swords women. And I happened to give a couple of them photos, and uh, they had my address from the photo, and the girl got in touch with me. She had a she had a rich father, and she wanted to make a movie in Phuket, Thailand, where the, the James Bond island is, from um, um, Live and Let Die, I think. No. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the James Bond Islands over there, the Roger Moore movie with uh, Christopher, A Man with a Golden Gun. So I was right, there, right. A Man with a Golden Gun country, uh, all because of Weapons of Death, that movie. So you never know. It's like pool balls on a billiard table. You know, sometimes you make a straight shot, and sometimes you just hit the balls and scatter them, and one ball falls into the right pocket. Amazing. So I want to switch gears. Talk about your career over in Japan. I mean, how is the business different over there? Um, You know, when I first came here, I had delusions of uh, grandeur. Bess Parker, who played Davy Crockett, he says, if you get into acting when you're trying to make it, you got to have a be in a a mindset of unreality. <laughs> you know, you got to think you can make it. I brought my movie Weapons of Death. Now, Weapons of Death uh, played all over America, all over the world. Uh, broke a house record in New York. Audiences, where I went to the films everywhere I went, the audiences were screaming and cheering. So I brought that movie over to Japan when I started coming here more and living here. Took it to Toho, and um, uh, one guy I found... Uh, you know, filmed uh, the guy who arranged uh, buying, purchasing films, and he, I left it as a video, and then came back a week later, and I said, "Well, how'd you like the movie?" Oh, I gave it to my assistant, and he said, "Not exciting." <laughs> Jesus, mm. you know, and here's people screaming and yelling, and then his assistant, yeah, his assistant, what, another, you know, competitive guy, or you know, so. Um, but anyway, I, I made the rounds and I and I got a I found um, through the American newspaper an agent for acting, so I got on television shows, uh, doing bit parts, extra parts, and through that I found a guy who was producing, uh, doing voice work, producing travel logs, and he needed uh, English speaking, and I helped him with the rewrite of the English translation. So it was just getting around, and uh, and then I found the voice agency. Um, for for uh, another agency for voice work. So the more agents you get, uh, you know, I mean, you can have multiple agencies here. Uh, the more you get, the uh, you know, the better odds of uh, getting parts. So there's a com- there's a famous comedian here, and I I got on uh, uh, a couple of his shows. So they they were just that was just bonus money. I was always you know uh, working on my my projects in America. It's, uh, and raising money uh, that way, the internet, of course, it started happening at that time, and that's been that's been good. The internet is great for artists, as we mentioned. So uh, that's how I got into it over here. Great, great. Okay, Paul, we're down to about like uh, twenty some minutes here, so we got a couple more questions here 
I just wanted to touch quickly on, uh, I know uh, Ninja Busters is premiered in San Francisco, so talk a little bit about that, and then we're going to talk about Spectre. Okay, Ninja Busters, um, I raised the money with a group of uh, karate friends. It's a comedy action, uh, family-oriented, even though there's a lot of action uh, movie. We shot that in Panavision, and um, we raised the money, and that was in 19... Uh, that was 1983. Um, now the guy who, the main producer and financer of that movie, uh, I told him not to give it to a distributor, but uh, he, he did. I, I arranged for him to ha- to have Ron Marchini, who by that time was selling his movies. He's the producer of Death Machines and Omega Cop. He was selling the movies country by country at the American film market. Put them together for a meeting, but the producer. Main financer of Ninja Busters wanted to go with the distributor, which of course was a mistake. That distributor uh, did not. He ended up in jail stealing money from Ninja Busters. I didn't, you know, I didn't. I found out years later, uh, and and six other movies. The print of Ninja Busters that we made uh, disappeared. So, what is it? Two years, two two years ago, I get a call. Uh, this film correct collector named Harry Guerrero uh, found a print of Ninja Busters in, in a storeroom in the Mojave Desert with 200 other cans of other movies, many of that had rusted through. The film stock had rusted through their metal cans, but Ninja Buster print was in good shape. He packed up the films that he bought from the guy who owned the storeroom looked at Ninja Busters, thought it was pretty good, ran it at his film festival. It was the hit of the film festival. I got emails, people found me, they said they were laughing so hard they had tears in their eyes. So this guy Harry calls me and, and tells me about it and uh, said he's this is, he would produce it as a Blu-ray, wanted me to do the commentary and the introduction, So which he did, and that came out last year. Uh, so now... Um, this is finally it's a Ninja Bus. is like it's a first release. We're premiering it after 30 years. I think it's 32 years. It's the old adage sometimes to have good luck is uh, the most b- brilliant plan. And if you stay in the business, you get these good lucks. So that's, that's what Ninja Busters is about. It's played in Texas at the Alamo Draft House, uh, played at various places. Um, and it's on Amazon with my commentary. I did the introduction in uh, Japan at Ninja Village. So, see, that, another thing on when this man asked me to do the introduction video, he said, you just do it at your house. Well, I didn't want to do that, so I, I traveled the 90 minutes, cameraman, and went to Ninja Village and filmed it in the middle of Ninja Village with these samurai walking by, I did a four-minute introduction. So I gave it some production yeah. value. And similarly, so I went the extra mileage on that, and I wasn't paid for that. I was just happy. He put up the 6000 bucks it cost to make the Blu-ray. I was just happy he was doing that. I didn't need to make money. Well, the same thing on Death Machines. I just did the commentary on that. The guy said to do the introduction. I went down to a temple and uh, because uh, the producer, Ron Marchini of Death Machines, and I saw the movie, The Yakuza, with Robert Mitchum, and there's a scene where he's ringing the bell, said, I'm, I'm calling up the gods. I started off my video at the temple. One take, I ring the bell, 
calling up the gods. I mentioned the Yakuza movie, watching it with Ron two weeks before we filmed Death Machines. And then I introduced Death Machines walking around the temple in one 360-degree uh, shot. So my point here is uh, went the went the extra distance on that. So when you get an opportunity, you know, go the extra distance distance it may you know maybe a little extra effort I had to go 90 miles to the ninja village pay my own admission mission of the cameraman but you know there it is forever and you never know who's going to see that you know some yeah producer I saw, I saw the movie. <laughs> yeah i saw the movie man i really enjoyed it uh death machines uh no ninja busters oh you saw ninja busters okay great yeah, I was surprised how 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 well it uh, came out, and see, it was a financially difficult uh, movie, William, to do. But making the movie was a lot of fun. But then the finances that it took to get the movie made, and then um, and we had a break, we had to finish it, and then afterwards, and I paid on that thing for ten years. So when other mm. people were Paying, paying on houses, I was paying on Ninja Busters. But now mm. it's back. It's a fresh movie, and it really is good. And I I wrote it. I wrote uh, about 75 minutes of it. Uh, and uh, I didn't realize the philosophy I put in there besides the comedy. I was writing comedy, but I just naturally, my personality, put some good philosophy. There's a line there where you shouldn't think negative when putting food in your stomach. And then there's a joke later on. I didn't realize that at the time I have all those kind of little philosophies. So on on the DVD, the um, there's a section of fans talking about Ninja Busters coming out of the theater. They in there and they said it changed my life. I got a new. I thought, what is he talking about? The comedy changed his life. I watched it again, and there's all these philosophy in there. So yeah, very very happy uh, about Ninja Busters, and now it's finally paid off. So I paid on it, made my payments for ten years, and uh, you know paid off the loans and uh, that were on it, and um, you know now it's now it's back. So once again, depends on how you figure those things. So now it's on my resume, and I can say that it's going to be in the theater. It's going to be the Great Star Theater. All the actors are going to be there. You know, here's here's like on on I, I was going to have a um, a party at the Berkeley Hilton hotel to get together all the actors and all my movies and producers. And cause I wanted to see all those guys again and rent the, this place and have food and maybe a couple of, uh, you know, video screens playing the movies silently and get together. And that would have cost me about five grand with the food and, you know, 80 people, hundred people. And then I decided, you know, instead of that five grand, I think I'll do, Wicked Players as an audio. That'll last longer. And then I got all my friends on it. Anyway, we had the party there at the recording studio. So $5,000, uh, I end up with Wicked Players. And then at Wicked Players, uh, one of the guys that worked on Ninja Busters says, hey, I got a friend at the Great Star Theater, a contact there. How about showing Ninja Busters at the Great Star Theater? So now the party's going to be at the Great Star Theater, and I don't have to pay for it. So that's just an idea of how do we spend our money, you know? So instead of buying the Porsche, maybe you make the movie. So for me, instead of having the party of, uh, you know, just a, a meeting food party, uh, I produced wicked players with that money. 
and then lucked out that they're going to do Ninja Busters. So John Travolta talked about when you move forward in your career, a lot of these connections start to reveal themselves. But when you're a young filmmaker, artist, actor, as you know, a lot of your listeners are listening in now, you just don't see what's possible. And it is scary, William. You know, I'm sure you've been there. You know, I'm age 26. I had this little success. I was in this play. But, geez, when's the next one coming? And it's scary when you're younger. But if you stick with it, you work. You know, you work so you can so you can live. If you stick with it, these things start connecting and paying off, like John Travolta said, but only if you stick with it. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so uh, what did you think about Spectre, and then would you like to see Daniel Craig and two more Bond films? Well, i tell you, I loved uh, Craig's first movie, uh, Casino Royale, Quantum Solace, of Solace. I keep trying to like. It has. A, I like the the airplane scene, the twin prop scene, couple. But it just that one didn't work. Uh, Skyfall knocked me out. This uh, thing about rebirth of James Bond, and he's you know he's got to reinvent himself after being injured. It was fantastic. And then Spectre came, and there was just something about that movie that I just loved. The He's not reinventing himself, but the story was clear. It connected. You see that I love the Sean Connery movies and the Pierce Brosnan movies, even the Roger Moore movies, but they were all about Bond going on a mission and the bad guy was the proactive person. But in these movies with Daniel Craig, especially Skyfall, Inspector, it's about Bond. It's about James Bond, his past, his problems, something about him, his relationships with women, not just an adventure he's on. So I love Spectre. Um, I like the two Bond girls on that. Um, the, the music, the, the pace, the cars, the various locations. And some guys had a problem with the fact of uh, Bond's relationship with the villain, um, played by the... Um, you know the, the German actor who was in uh, Glorious Bastards. Christopher, uh, they had a problem. I won't say what what it is for the people who have not seen Spectre, but I love that relationship. You know, with uh, that he had in the past, it explains uh, Bond's past. Love Spectre. Um, yeah, I like to see Daniel Craig in two more Bond movies, and they're making a lot about him getting 150 million dollars offered that for the two Bond movies, and some people just. I don't know if it's envy or whatever. They just can't handle that. It's all over the Internet. And the thing is, you know, William, it's this thing about acting and salaries, it's very fair. It's who can sell tickets. So if he can sell that many tickets and he can negotiate that price because the next two Bond movies will sell that many tickets and forever on Blu-ray and on and on and on. So... It's based on your fan base and how many tickets you you can sell. So if Daniel Craig can sell that many tickets, then uh, he should get the that price. It's also very risky. Uh, the Bond movies, all movies, it's like an in, industrial lot of industrial accidents on movies with you know wires all over the place and stunts. But especially the Bond films and uh, Craig injured himself on Spectre. So. Uh, 
I think it's very fair um, that he gets that price. So, yeah, I'm looking forward. I hope he does the two more. I'm I'm a fan of his. I liked his, uh, you know, his performance on that. I always remember when he first started, he worked out and built himself up and got those great shoulders. And he he said, um, in response to a question, um, I don't build myself up to look good. I build myself up to look like I can hurt somebody. <laughs> you know, that's James <laughs> Bond. And that's, you know, being being realistic. Uh, I like that approach to acting. It's, you know, uh, it's hard work, you know, bodybuilding and discipline of eating and just to fit the part better and to look like he could take care of business physically, he did that. So I got I got a lot of respect uh, respect for him. And I love Spectre. Yep. Watched it many yeah, times. Paul, <laughs> Paul Scrabble says that in Spectre, all the Bond women survive. Yes, yes, they all survive. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are different in Spectre. I saw Spectre at the theater twice, and then um, I, I saw it on Blu-ray, and I watched it at home you know, by myself, curtains closed. I always make it just like a theater. And after it was done... I thought, uh, well, no wonder that movie's so good. You know, it's it's short movie. It's 90 minutes. And then I thought, well, wait a minute, let me look it up. And I looked it up, and before I could find the running time, it said the longest Bond movie is Spectre, <laughs> you know, two and a half <laughs> hours. And I thought it was, I thought, yeah, that's why it's good. It's short. Well, there's pace, you know, there's pace. It seemed short. It seemed 90 minutes, but it was two and a half hours. Now that was that's wow. quite a, a feat to accomplish to have a viewer think it's ninety when it's two and a half after I'd seen it twice before. So yeah, love that movie. It's uh, empowering for me. Yeah, the Bond girls survive. Uh, yeah, and if there's a few other things that happen in there that I think is great. Yeah, and then uh, Paul Scrabo says uh, you should do a book on the world of indie producing. Well, uh, you know, I started a book years ago, and then I did the the James Bond lifestyle, as using James Bond as a um, an image of surviving freelance. So I put all my indie producing stories in that. I even have a mini, uh, five six page um, bio of me. Uh, but the first part was like, why should I teach you to be like James Bond? So here's my bio, you know, I tell about that. So I put all that in, in the, my James Bond lifestyle. It's, um, I think it's like 200, you know, it's near 300 pages. Uh, that's another thing I just did. Um, I just finished um, work, working with a translator. The James Bond lifestyle is now in Japanese. Uh, translated by a doctor who loved the James Bond lifestyle and approached me and... Uh, he said he'd do it for free, and we're going 50-50 on the Japanese profits. So uh, it's just now on my YouTube channel. Uh, we've got the Japanese with subtitles, the James Bond lifestyle. So um, thank thank Paul uh, Scrabble for that um, advice. Uh, but that's that's in my James Bond lifestyle. You know, for your actor friends, I might have mentioned it before, David Hedison. Did a 12-minute on the audio book. Did a 12-minute intro that he wrote himself, and um, about acting. And yeah, uh, yeah. I guess you've heard it. Now you can go yeah, to my sorry. YouTube channel. Just search James. Just search David Hedison, James Bond lifestyle, or go to my YouTube channel. 
There's six minutes of it with his voice, uh, with photos of his movies and when he's talking about his acting teacher. And then the long version, you can see that for free. Just go to a Kindle, search James Bond Lifestyle, click the book, look inside, and the whole 12 minutes text is there. So every actor must read that. He talks about how to how to survive as an actor, make yourself better. Um, what the advice he got from um, uh, Meisner, his famous acting coach, how he ran away from uh, his first audition because he was scared. And then he came back just before his number was called, and then he got he won the the contest and got into this acting school because of it. So that's a must for actors. So uh, search David Hedison, James Bond lifestyle on YouTube or uh, and also for the complete thing, go to uh, Amazon, James Bond lifestyle, Kindle and click the look inside and you can read it. That's a must for actors and, and all artists, actually. Excellent. Excellent. So we're down to about uh, seven or eight minutes here. So, Talk about who are your favorite three success teachers, living or dead? Uh, yeah, I had uh, some um, uh, not famous um, success. Well, one of them, the first one, Anthony Norvell. When my first movie bombed, man, I was I was the only time I was down, you know, age 26. And uh, we got depressed for two weeks. And that was the only time in my life after that I handled everything. Um but I went to the bookstore and, uh, you know, see what was there. And at my feet, I, I saw this yellow book face up on, a, on the shelf. And it said, um, The Million Dollar Secret Hidden in Your Mind. And I picked it up, and it had all these. It was by Anthony Norvell. And he was uh, the advisor to the stars in the 40s and the 50s. Um, teaching stars how to have the image and project and that and he wrote this success book where he wrote he wrote many of them so um those techniques that were in that book uh, just changed me you know write yourself a check you know that you're going to get for doing your dream job i wrote myself a five thousand dollar check carried it you know for directing a movie i put in the memo a feature film my second and then i put it in my wallet and then I forgot about it. And then I worked on death machines, 150 a week, which was a lot of money, plenty of money at that time, um, with apartment only being 150 a month, a good apartment. So um, I came back after working on it, and I thought, where's that check? It wasn't in my wallet. And I looked, and it was in my briefcase. I saw the five thousand. I said, I wonder how much I made on death machines. I added up my salary for the pre-production, for the whole thing. And it came to four thousand eight hundred dollars, almost five thousand dollars, and that was the check I wrote. <laughs> so they had techniques like that in there. And then when I went to L.A. Um, about a year later, Anthony Norvell, then age seventy, had come back from Mount Vesuvius, where he lived in Greece, right on the foot of uh, Mount Vesuvius, and he was teaching classes. So I took four classes a week from him for three months, all mind science, money, success. Uh, nutrition. I mean everything. Um, so he was my he was my favorite uh, teacher. I mentioned that in my James Bond lifestyle. I've had two other success teachers um, after that, and then I'm inspired by um, 
by other actors in the business. You know, Kirk Douglas was my first hero. I got into the movies because of seeing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the making of, on Disneyland before I was eight years old, before the movies released. Disneyland had the making of. And, uh, of course, Kirk Douglas starred in that movie. And he keeps going. He made all those great movies, independent uh, producer, started his own company, produced The Vikings, Spartacus, many other movies uh, with his own company. Uh, then when he got a little old, too old, uh, even 70, age 80, he made it, uh, was making some movies. Then he got into novel writing. He wrote his biography. Then he got into novels. I think he's 95. Two years ago, he did a one-man show called uh, As I Remember It. And he taped it, um, and I got to see that, but he performed it in L.A. One-man show, at, you know, age 92, I think he was at that time. And just last yeah. year, he came out with a book, The Making of Spartacus and Breaking the Backlist, The Blacklist. Uh, you, mm. you saw the movie Trumbo, and you know about yeah. that, uh, because Kirk Douglas' character is in that. And that book, that book is fantastic. It's a, just a terrific book. And it's also produced on audio with his son, Michael Douglas, reading it. Uh, and it sounds, you know, Michael Douglas sounds like Kirk Douglas. So Kirk Douglas is like 95. He doesn't stop. So you talk about right. image and reinventing yourself. He had a stroke. He crashed in a helicopter. And he's still going. So uh, I think he's an inspiration for all artists to keep he comes out with you know his own movies and then he comes out with his books and he just he just keeps going age 95 and you know one man show live show that he that he taped and wrote and it's great because he has other media he has multimedia he talks to himself on video as a young man i don't know how they edited that but they found he's a young man and he's talking to himself as an old man on stage, but a young man on this big video screen, it was well produced. So he keeps coming up with stuff. Uh, Clint Eastwood was he 85, and he's got that move, new movie, Scully, and he did the one with um, uh, Frankie Valli, um, Four Seasons, yeah. called Jersey, Jersey Boys. Boy. He's 85. He never stops. So there's a you know Academy Awards uh, 10 years ago. So you keep going, and you keep uh, producing projects, projects uh, as you can invest in yourself so um uh, yeah those those are the guys that inspire me excellent excellent okay so we're down to about about four minutes here so uh if you could sit down with any director living or dead and pick his brain who would you choose oh boy um big i'll tell you john sturgis uh, I'm glad Quentin Tarantino keeps that name alive. He's a big fan of John Sturgis. Uh, he did The Magnificent Seven, uh, Ice Station Zebra, The Satan Bug, and um, uh, he's just a great uh, storyteller. So I'd like to talk with him about his projects, how he planned them. Uh, the the, um, the one with Steve McQueen, The Great Escape, he did that. Gunfighter at O.K. Corral. So him, and then the other one I'd really like to talk with, Howard Hawks. He did my two favorite movies, The Thing from Another World, the original 1952 version, and he did Rio Bravo, my favorite, favorite movie. Hawks is uh, known as the invisible technician. Most of his shots are high level, and uh, yet 
if you watch his movies like Rio Bravo, you got Dean Martin, that famous scene where he's going to drink and then he pours the shot of drink back into the bottle. He cuts into Dean Martin, and you don't even know he's cutting into a close-up. He's got a wide shot of Martin sitting at the table, and then when Martin decides to pour it back in, he cuts into a close-up. And you never know he did it. You're just watching Dean Martin. So Howard Hawks, the invisible technician, I'd love to, to talk with him. Also, he's uh, pretty much invented the overlapping dialogue. If you see the movie The Thing, where James Arness is the... The, the alien from another world and all the Air Force men and they're talking, they're overlapping each other and he invented that and what he did, and bringing a baby I think he did with uh, uh, Cary Grant and uh, he started the overlapping dialogue there and what you do is the first part of the dialogue and the end part of the dialogue that somebody has is not important, so it's okay to overlap and then you hear the middle that's important, so overlapping dialogue um, pretty much invented by Howard Hawks and I try to use that once in a while so uh, those are those are the two that I'd like to talk with awesome well Paul thanks again for coming on the show man it's always a pleasure well thanks for having me William yep it's always always exciting and uh, I hope uh, your listeners uh, uh, got some ideas and you know I'm hitting it too I couldn't get anything going um, you know, last year, and then finally some things hit, and I'm sure a couple of months from now, after the, these things are finished, uh, I'm sure it's going to get slow for me again, and I'm going to be sitting in the room thinking, uh, how can I make the next thing happen? So we're all in it together, you know. Uh, I'm sure Clint Eastwood's thinking, what's he going to do for his next movie? <laughs> you know, he's worried he can't make. It. He doesn't want. He doesn't want to make a bomb. He wants to come in under budget. So we're all in this together. So. Um, I hope your listeners got some um, got some inspiration. Absolutely. Okay, Paul, we'll have a great day in Japan. Okay. Thank you, William. Bye. Okay, bye. And listeners out there, just remember to do something for your career every day and break a leg. Night. Looking for a show to see this weekend? Look no further than DC Metro Theater Arts. They've got reviews, Q&As with actors, and much, much more. Visit DCMetroTheaterArts.com. That's DCMetroTheaterArts.com.